So you are now armed with Ovid, armed with Virgil, and you are ready for the 13th canto of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk together slowly, passage by passage, through Inferno. Last time, we didn't walk at all in Inferno. <laughs> Instead, I read you some passages from Ovid's Metamorphoses and from Virgil's Aeneid to get ready for the sheer and unadulterated brilliance of Canto 13 of Inferno. And we've come to it now. If you missed that episode, I really recommend you go back and listen to it because knowing the Ovid and the Virgil that's behind the passages I'm about to read to you will bring out the depth and the flavor in ways that are almost impossible to understand. Just as a reminder, we're in the seventh circle of hell, the circle of the violent. We're in the second ring of the seventh circle or about to cross into it. We've been up stride centaur Nessus. He's taken us across a boiling river and we've been set down on the other side. So here we go. Canto 13. Lines 1 through 45. Nasus hadn't even gotten to the other side when we stepped into a wood that wasn't even blazed with a trail. No green leaves, but ones the color of dusk. No smooth branches, but knotty and tangled ones. No clusters of fruit were there, but thorns with poison. No rougher, thicker scrub is the home of the wild beasts that despise the farmed land in the low spot between Cecina and Corneto. Here the hideous harpies make their nests, the creatures that chase the Trojans out of the Strophides with sad prophecies of their future woe. These harpies had wide wingspans, but the necks and faces of humans feet with talons and feathers across their ample bellies, they made their lamentation up in the bizarre trees. And my good master, before you get any farther in, you should know that you're in the second ring, he started to say, and will be here until you get to the horrible sands. So have a good look around. You will see stuff that you wouldn't trust even if I gave a formal oration on it. I heard wailing from every direction and didn't see anyone who could be making it. For this reason, I stopped, completely lost. I believe that he believed that I believe that all the voices from among the branches came from people who were hidden from us. So my master said, if you break off a twig from one of these bushes, your current thoughts will be cut short. At that, I stretched out my hand a bit and broke off a small branch from a large thorny bush. Then the stem cried out, Why do you break me? When it had been made dark with blood, it recommenced talking. Why do you rend me? Don't you have any compassion in your soul? We were men who have now become brambles. I'll bet your hand would have shown more pity if we'd been the souls of snakes. Like a green log burning on one end that drips sap out of the other and hisses as the air escapes, so from that broken branch oozed out words and blood all at once, and I let the twig drop and stood like a man held in terror. Is that enough drama and craziness for you? This passage is 
unreal. I have no idea how we're going to get through it, but let's just try. <laughs> we're going to take it piece by piece and just work it down line by line. It is packed. So let's start at the top. Nasus had not even gotten to the other shore when we stepped into a wood. And you should know that in the Florentine, everything now starts with the word non, non, non. Perhaps another way to translate that opening line would be, nor had Nasus even gotten to the other side. It sounds so weird to me to say nor like that, so old-fashioned. But it does. It starts with a no. It starts with the not, not Nasus had gotten to the other shore until we stepped into the wood that was even that wasn't even blazed with a trail and then all these knots and I tried to translate it this way no green leaves no smooth branches no clusters of fruit no rougher thicker scrub is the home of the wild bees no 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 this is this anaphora technique and we've met anaphora before remember on the gate of hell by me by me by me anaphora is the repetition of something for rhetorical purposes. On the gate, it was by me. When we got to Francesca in the circle of lust, remember it was amor, amor, over and over again. Amor, this, amor, that. In her speech, all these tercets, three-line bits, starting with amor. Here, we have non, non, non. It is a complete negation at the very front. You should also note that that first line, Nasus hadn't even gotten to the other shore, is a tieback to Canto 12. There is something that ties Canto 13 to Canto 12. We're going to want to talk a lot about that. Just because I had my troubles with 12 doesn't mean I don't like it. And part of the reason I like it so much is because it so perfectly leads right into 13 in so many ways. And the poet seems to signal us. There's Nasus growing back across the boiling river. And now they've stepped into a wood that doesn't even blazed with a trail. And then we get this weird repetition. No green leaves. The, but one's the color of dusk. No smooth branches, but not entangled. No clusters of fruit were there, but thorns with poison. This is the first vegetation we've seen since Limbo. Since that enameled green grass. And... There's a little bit of resonance with Limbo going on here because there everything was green and the water was flowing. And here there's the leaves are brown and everything's knotted and there's no fruit. There's just thorniness everywhere. And we get yet another time. No rougher, thicker scrub is the home of the wild beast that despise the farmland in the low spot between Cecina and Corneto. Corneto, remember the very end of Canto 12? There was Rainier de Corneto, the highway robber, burning up in the boiling river. This whole bit is the Marema, the marshy area in Dante's day. It was particularly known as an animal habitat and a very dangerous place for travelers. But this is much more of a forest, and it's a scary forest. It's brown, it's tangled, it's poisonous, there's no fruit, and it ties right back. There was Renier de Corneto. Now we get a reference to Corneto, the first nine lines. The first line refers back to Canto 12. Nasus hadn't even stepped over. The ninth line refers back to Canto 12. This can't be a mistake in a poem set up on threes. The first and ninth line, all this referencing back, and then maybe even a little implicit reference back, which is going to become stronger, to Limbo. That's how it opens. Let's go on.
hear the hideous harpies. Harpies, we saw them. Remember last episode, Virgil, the Aeneid, the harpies. Remember them and the wild prophecies they made. You're going to end up eating your dinnerware because you're going to be so hungry in Italy because Aeneas's sailors had eaten some of their cattle. In the last canto, we had centaurs, half horse, half men. And now we have some kind of bird-human combination weirdness that's going on here. Again, the fusion of bestiality is happening all around us. Here, there were the hideous, and the word in the Florentine is brute. They're ugly. They're brutal. Brute harpies. Remember back in the mapping of hell, and I said it's hard sometimes to know what's the part of malice and what's insane bestiality. Remember this? Uh, Virgil lays out three different types of sin, incontinence, malice, and insane bestiality. And I said, well, it you know, the obvious thing is the incontinence are all the people before the walls of Dis. And then we get malice, which is probably the violent. And then the insanely bestial are the people on down below the violent in what you'll find out are the sins of fraud or as Virgil lines it out. But I said, it's hard to know sometimes what's malice and what's bestiality. That's because of passages like this. This seems to be bestial harpies, centaurs, minotaurs. This all seems hideously Bestial, and we get this first hint here at the very beginning of prophecies, the creatures that chase the Trojans out of the Strophides with sad prophecies of their future woe. Dante the Poet is setting us up for this canto. This canto is so constructed, it's wild. Just be on the lookout for prophecies and be on the lookout when they occur because we're being told at the very front, here's the harpies. They're sitting up in these hideous trees, these hideous, thorny, poisonous trees with no fruit that are all knotted and tangled. And, you know, remember those those harpies? They were the prophets of Aeneas's future woe. Go back to the last episode. Think about how those harpies were described. These are more hideous. These harpies had wide wingspans, but the necks and faces of humans, those just had the faces of women back in Virgil. These have necks and faces, feet with talons. Those had hands with talons. So these have human feet somehow, but the toenails are like talons and feathers across their ample bellies. Back there in Virgil, they oozed out of their bellies. But this emphasizes their bestiality, feathers across their ample bellies. They made their lamentations up in the bizarre trees. I should tell you that that word bizarre, strani, in the Florentine, it's a little bit of a problem. Here's the thing. It could either be, let me translate it into English, they made their bizarre lamentations up in the trees, or it could be they made their lamentations up in the bizarre trees. It's it's unclear whether Strani modifies trees or lamentations in the passage. I chose it as trees because I think it's <laughs> personally better there. But again, there's a little bit of a translation problem that's going on here. But notice what we're being set up right here, set up from the very beginning, it sets the tone for a Virgilian landscape. So we're being referenced back to those passages I read you in the Aeneid, Trojans, Strophides, Harpies, that whole bit, we're being called straight to it. And yet at the same time, it's being twisted around us. And while we've got this Virgilian landscape of Harpies, it's being set in a forest, which isn't so much necessarily that passage in the Aeneid, not at all, in fact. And even the harpies are being torqued, and then the next passage starts the torquing even farther. So Virgil says, my good master says, before you get any farther in, 
you should know that you're in the second ring. Now, if you paid attention and if you remember Canto 11, and if our pilgrim is paying attention, then he should know what this means. The second ring of the violent, that is violence against themselves. We've had violence against others, and now we've come to violence against themselves. In other words, the suicides. So Virgil is here calling us back to Canto 11 to remind us where we are. And he says, we will be here, or he says to the pilgrim, you will be here, until you get to the horrible sands. And Virgil is a rare glimpse ahead. Virgil's giving us a little glimpse of what's coming next. So we've come out of the boiling river of blood. We've come into this weird, ghostly forest. And now he's telling us there's some horrible sands up ahead, which there are, where we'll be for a good long time when we get there. So Virgil says, have a good look around, and you will see stuff that you wouldn't trust, even if I gave you a formal oration on it. Interesting. Trust. Fede. You wouldn't trust this even if I said it out loud. <laughs> this is a problem. Just sit and think about it for a minute. So what Virgil is saying is that you're going to see things that even if I, Virgil, the Latin poet, the guy you follow, even if you read about this, you still wouldn't have any fede, faith, trust in it. This is going to start to bring up a giant question in this canto. How do you trust what you read? I'm only going to ask the question now because it's part of the labyrinth of this canto. It, this canto is going to work out the relationship between rhetoric and trust. And if you don't think that's important, <laughs> you're not paying attention to the modern political world. What is the relationship between rhetoric, formal, beautiful, polished speech, and trust? And can you put your trust in rhetoric? And if you put your trust in rhetoric, whose rhetoric do you put it in? And here, seemingly, Virgil is saying, even I couldn't make you trust this. And Furthermore, here's a tie back to Canto 12. Fede, trust, is the fundamental relationship with a tyrant. When you have to deal with tyrants, with despots, what you want to do is show your loyalty, your faith, your trust. Not your smarts, not your brains, not anything like that. You want to instead base it all on trust. And that's what Virgil's saying here. And I realize it's a lot to hang on fede, trust, right here. But believe me, this will play out in the canto. And it's so odd that Virgil starts out. We've been in a strictly Virgilian landscape. Harpies, we had six lines on them right out of Virgil. Hmm, with some changes. Mostly out of Virgil. And then Virgil says, you know, I couldn't even tell you what's about to happen because you wouldn't believe me. Holy crow. How do you believe what you read? Let's pass on. I heard wailing from every direction and didn't see anyone who could be making it. And for this reason, I stopped completely lost. Tutto smarito. Where else has Dante been smarito? La mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per un selvo oscuro che la dritta via era smarita. Right there in the opening, he was lost. Where was he lost? 
in a dark wood. What kind of wood? A wood without a trail in it. Where are we now? Lost in a wood that doesn't even have a trail blazed in it. There is a callback right here to Canto 1. It's very important to see that we have come back to a place that is similar, not the same, but similar to the opening of comedy. This is why many people say this Canto reveals something about the poet, something that the poet has in his backstory that he hasn't yet told us. But we'll save that for the next episode. I'm not sure I buy that argument, but it's sitting there because of Smarito, Tuto Smarito, in a wood. I'm lost in a wood. Hadn't he been here before? Let's pass on to one of the strangest lines in Inferno. I believed that he believed that I believed that all the voices from among the branches came from people who were hidden from us. Okay, before I get to that opening line that I believed, he believed, let's just say that there's an Adam and Eve reference running under this. When Adam and Eve fall, when they eat the apple, it doesn't say apple, but okay, people think it's an apple. When they eat the fruit of the tree, the apple, and they fall, they hide from God, and God comes walking in the garden calling for them. And there's this kind of reference here behind it, because this, where we are, with these barren trees with no fruit, just thorns, this is kind of an inverted or an anti-Eden. This is Eden turned on its head, inverted. It doesn't bear fruit. It's all thorns. It's a completely cursed Eden. And remember when God, you don't have to remember, but if you do, when God curses Adam and Eve, he talks about how the ground is going to give forth brambles and thorns. This is Eden post-curse. And our poet is signaling to us that there's people hidden in here, like Adam and Eve were hidden post the fall inside the Garden of Eden. But it starts off with that line, credio che credete chio credesse. I believe that he believed that I believed. I believe, that's the present tense, credio. So that's the poet. I believe, right now, in the present tense, I believe, and then that he believed, che credete. That's the simple past. So I now, as a poet, think that Virgil, I believe, that Virgil believed, and then we have an imperfect subjunctive, chio credese that I believe. You'll notice those tenses, just not to get too grammatical on you, but just let me go to the weeds for just a second. Notice we went from present to past to imperfect subjunctive. We Our tenses got more and more opaque. I believe that he believed that I believe that all the voices. What do we just say? It's all about trust. Eve, you couldn't trust it even if I gave you a formal oration on it. This says to us that something very odd is going on here. How can you know what someone else is thinking? Isn't that what the poet claims? I'm believe, as I'm writing this, I think that Virgil thought that I thought that. So you're <laughs> pushing it through so many scrims. How can you trust any of it? Where do you put your trust in a world in which I believe that he believed that I believed? A constant set of suppositions, a constant set of guesses. And here's the thing <laughs> that's going to play out so big. That's what interpreting lit is. You realize that when I read comedy, what I'm doing 
is I believe that he believed that I believed. <laughs> Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm saying, I'm standing here and saying, I think that Dante thought that I would see this in this passage. In other words, interpreting is an act of belief, an act of faith. Go back to Virgil. You wouldn't fit there. You wouldn't trust it even if I gave you a formal oration on it. Oh, something is slipping underneath us. So my master said, if you break off a twig from one of these bushes, your current thoughts will be cut short. In the end, and this is what's curious, Virgil does know what the pilgrim's thinking. The pilgrim's thinking, what's going on? And the pilgrim is thinking there are people hidden in here. And Virgil does say, okay, come on. Here's the deal. If you break off this twig, you're going to quit in this <laughs> this circle, uh, merry-go-round that you're going on of who believes what. You'll just cut it. It'll just all be cut short and you'll figure it out. But two, also notice Virgil is prompting our pilgrim to violence in the circle of the violent. At that, the pilgrim stretches out his hand and breaks off a small branch from a large thorny bush, and the stem cries out, Why do you break me? Remember Polydorus. Remember the Aeneid. Remember Aeneas pulling up the myrtle bush. This is why we went through it all. Remember what happened? Why, Aeneas, are you tearing me? What are you doing? This is a reference directly back to Virgil, to the third book of the Aeneid. We have now had the third book twice, We've had it the harpy scene, and we've had the Polydorus scene, all right here. So this is all moving around Virgil, who's saying, you wouldn't even trust it if I told you. <laughs> Do you see the difficulty that's suddenly going on here? The rhetorical gamesmanship that's going on? It's fabulous. It's unbelievable how it's all being constructed. The stem calls out, why do you break me? When, I, when it had been made dark with blood, it recommenced talking, why do you rend me? Don't you have any compassion for my soul? We were men who have now become brambles. I'll bet your hand would have shown more pity if we'd been the souls of snakes. Men, humans, brambles, vegetation, snakes, animals, the three states of being from Aristotle. There they are. The three states of life, as it were. Humans, vegetation, and animals all in one tercet. But also, of course, there's Ovid. Now we're getting toward the transformations. And now we're getting to why I read that passage out of Metamorphoses. We were men who have become brambles. I'll bet your hand would have shown more pity if we had been the souls of snakes. We could have been transformed into other things. But we were transformed into these thorny bushes. It's very important to see that this bush is not encasing the soul of this damned person. This bush is is the soul of this damned person metamorphosized <laughs> into this nightmarish scene last bit of the passage like a green log burning on one end that drips up out of the other and hisses as the air escapes this surely is one of the most beautiful similes in inferno there's some <laughs> Even better ones up in Paradiso, but okay, for now, this is surely one of the most beautiful. So you've got a green log, and it's caught, as green logs do, barely, caught on one end, but out of the other end, sap is 
you know, spitting out and air is hissing out. You Surely you've seen this. It's so beautiful and it's so well said. And this is what this thing is doing. The air of the voice is spitting out with the blood, which is like the sap, and they're all spitting out from this broken stem together. So the broken, so that the broken branch oozed out words and blood all at once. And I let the twig drop and stood like a man in terror. I bet you did, because it is absolutely terrifying. There are harpies up in the trees. They're dead, thorny nasty brambles all around us or at least dead looking you break one and suddenly the, the it bleeds mm, much like that Ovid story it bleeds much like that Aeneas story it bleeds and then it speaks and does something else like a burning log at one end that drips sap this is going to set up the fire imagery, the burning imagery that is going to start to dominate the middle of this canto. This metaphor is going to move into the speech of this broken branch. So let's just stop and review this very complicated canto. One, it is self-consciously linking back to canto 12. It also is linking back to Canto 1 and maybe linking back to Canto 3, Limbo. There may be more of that to come, all about poetics to come. So it's linking back to various places in comedy. It is a Virgilian landscape that calls into question our trust of Virgil's own text. It's a fully Virgilian landscape in which Virgil says, well, even if you read this, you wouldn't trust it, which brings up a huge question. How do we trust this text? How do you trust what's going on here? Okay, so Virgil says, listen, you wouldn't believe it if you read it. So seeing is believing. Break off the branch. Well, you know what? Now I'm standing out here. I'm reading Dante. I can't break off a branch. How do I trust Dante's text? There is a dangerous game that's being played here. If seeing is believing, if I can't necessarily trust everything I read, then how can I trust Dante's comedy? Either Dante the poet is playing with fire which could be the case, and playing with fire in many, many ways, or he's working on a level of complex irony that is almost mind-blowing. You have to sit with it and let your brain get around it. Because what if I can't trust this text, which supposedly reveals the truth of the universe? Then suddenly everything is much more complicated than it first appears. And finally, the sheer decentering of this passage. I mean, good grief, you can barely get your bearings. There's harpies, there's woods, there's speaking stems, there's crazy grammar. I believe that he believed that I believe. It's, it's all so complicated, and it, every single tercet, three line bit, seems to decenter me. It pulls me off my guard. I think I'm in Virgil's landscape. Whoop. How do I trust anything Virgil says? Oh, how do I trust anything Dante says? Oh, how can I believe that he believed that I believe? Oh, is interpretation a faith statement? Oh, how can this happen? What is a transformation? Who is this person? How can they still be somebody? If they're not their same self, then who are they? Can you judge what's been transformed? Oh, so many questions. And you know what? They're going to have to wait to the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, so subscribe so you don't miss it. If by any means you got this far into this episode and you haven't had the Ovid Virgil 
landscapes that were in the previous episode, go back and catch them because they'll play out in the next passage too. And come back next time because, wow, this guy in the, that is the tree, who is not in the tree, but who is the tree, this guy, oh, what he says is mind-blowing. So come back next time. Connect with me all over on social media. Let's talk more about it. And otherwise, wow, we are in the middle of some poetic brilliance, some ironic brilliance, some unbelievable rhetorical fancy dancing right here on the podcast, Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.